Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast, uh, episode 40, to be precise. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hello, hello. And by Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey, both. Well, today is kind of an unusual episode for us um, because it's just going to be the three of us. And, and that wasn't even necessarily what we had planned. We had a terrific guest lined up, and hopefully we'll have a chance to speak with that guest again on a later occasion. So I'm not going to uh, tip off who it is. Um, but uh, because of you know unforeseen life circumstances that happen to everyone, um, it's three of us here today. And honestly, like the there couldn't be more to talk about, quite frankly. And yeah. so it just seemed yeah. like it would be a waste. It would be a waste of a great opportunity to have a conversation. Um, now, clearly, uh, the most salient issues taking place right now, as we're recording on a Thursday night, uh, have to do with uh, once again racist violence. Um, and, you know, as three white folks on this podcast, we may not be the ideal interlocutors for a conversation um, about, you know, racist violence and the the way in which that is lived by all people in the United States, by racialized people, by white people, um, by all people. But, um, you know, obviously we have uh, some strong opinions about what's been taking place and uh, we have this podcast. And so I think we, it's the right thing for us to do to take this opportunity to share what we're thinking with you and not just leave it all on Twitter, um, which maybe leaves a little bit to be desired. So <laughs> to kind of to launch things, Derek, can you just take our listeners through some of what's been going on in the last couple of days? Yeah, this, so this all sort of started... Uh, as we know, um, Sunday evening when um, Jacob Blake was um, was the victim of police, uh, an attempt at police lethality. Yeah, I'd call it uh, attempted murder. There. I would call it attempted murder, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm I'm borrowing from Kevin Blackaso when I say an attempt at police lethality, but I've tweeted several times that that was uh, an attempted murder of Jacob Blake, where it was a, a, an unarmed person, an un unarmed black man who was um, going into his car, being pulled away by a police officer and shot in the back seven times in front of his children. Um, so yet again, for the, um, for, for the, it seems like the, the countless um, time, but the second time in a couple months, a highly sort of notable um, um, person was the victim of police violence. And then after this happened Sunday night, and then after, um, beginning on uh, immediately on Monday, we started to see kind of glimmers of a, an athletic labor mobilization related to not only Jacob Blake, but also Brianna Taylor, also George Floyd. Um, this seemed to really break um, particularly NBA players um, in terms of um, or, or at least stimulated them to to begin their sort of movement. So we started Hearing on uh, this was on Monday, August twenty fourth. Um, Chris Paul, after the Rockets Oklahoma City game, um, said uh, started talking about Jacob Blake. We heard LeBron James make um, impassioned remarks after the uh, Lakers Trailblazers games, and then we saw the Milwaukee Bucks start expressing frustration. And we'll we'll note that um, the Milwaukee Bucks is a sort of a hometown feel. Um, um, for them. And then on Tuesday, 
we saw the Toronto Raptors or, or news broke that the Toronto Raptors and the Boston Celtics were actually um, contemplating what was framed as a boycott by media, but it's actually um, a strike. They were going to withhold their labor or, or talking about withholding their labor um, in protest uh, of um, police lethality and white supremacy. Jalen Brown talked about it. We, we saw Pascal Siakam talk about it. We um, saw Fred Van Fleet talk about it. And then yesterday, um, just before tip-off, uh, during the uh, uh, Bucks uh, orlando Magic game, um, the Magic were on the court, and suddenly there was no Bucks. Um, and the Bucks decided to, um, in a brilliant um, show of solidarity decided to um, strike uh, and not show up to play. And then we saw all of the the entire NBA um, in another brilliant movement of sort of labor mobilization and solidarity. The entire NBA um, um, went on strike uh, yesterday evening. They called a players-only meeting um, or a players and coaches-only meeting at 8 p.m. And they discussed um, the kind of terms for returning to play. Um, we also saw MLS, for instance, so Major League Soccer. Um, th those matches were, uh, or those players went on strike. We saw some Major League Baseball um, players um, go on strike. We saw, of course, as we sort of always have seen in the, in the recent history of labor mobilization and sport, we saw the WNBA also go on strike, um, the Women's National Basketball Association. We saw tennis star Naomi Osaka also go on strike um, and pull herself from the Western and Southern Open. Um, this all happened like yesterday evening. And if you follow any of us on Twitter, um, uh, you, you will know that we were kind of live tweeting this entire thing. Um, and I should note that the NHL played. Um, we'll get to that. I will, because I absolutely have to rant about the NHL and about their whole sort of treatment with this. But NHL players played, some and um, MLB players played. And now that brings us today to today. It's Thursday, um, August 27th at 9, just after 9 p.m. We still don't know the terms of um, the return to play for NBA players. Um, so we don't know that we know that or at least sources are saying, suggesting that NBA players have decided to resume playoffs, maybe Saturday, maybe tomorrow, I think likely Saturday or Sunday. We don't know the terms. We don't know what they're asking for, um, what has been sort of conceded. We don't know really much there, so I can't speak to that. But I think this episode is going to come out on the 28th, so we probably still won't know um, at that point. But yeah, that's kind of a very long-winded. No, that's good story of what happened thank you derek for that yeah no that's that's necessary i mean none of this you know any follow-up doesn't really make any sense at all if we don't have that context it's necessary um mm -hmm. and, and the thoroughness is necessary because you know just like the layers are, are part of it like the the sheer quantity and what you're saying the presences and the absences as well right are really notable in terms yeah. of trying to unpack yeah. what's going on here so i, I just have you know a couple of ways I want to sort of start thinking this through, because I mean, what we're talking about here really are the absolute freshest of hot takes, right? I mean, this is something that we are going to be thinking with, no doubt, um, as, you know, scholars of sport for uh, possibly the rest of our careers. Um, who, I mean, who knows? But 
you know, this is just the, the our first look, our first glimpse. And as you say, we don't even know what terms and conditions are or anything like that. But there are still some things that are standing out to me right now. And I want to approach in a couple of different ways. The first is in a sort of moral or ethical level, um, which is to say that, um, you know, I can't imagine the experience of blackness in the United States that so many of the um, the black members of the NBA and the WNBA, just to focus on those leagues right now, um, what they endure in their lives and what their families endure and have always endured. Um, and so I certainly can't speak for anyone, but what I can certainly imagine is that the idea of having to work in front of what are very largely white audiences to provide pleasure and gratification to those white audiences, work that they were deeply ambivalent about performing in the first place, right? When it came to the sort of because of the pandemic and because of also um, the uprisings around the country, as the bubble was coming together, there was deep ambivalence about this project in the first place. So that's a really, that's a, sorry to interrupt you. That's a really important point. Like these, the NBA and WNBA players did not necessarily want to come back. They came back to like in many for for many like because of the George Floyd, um, what happened with George Floyd and what was happening all around. They came back to stimulate social change, and I think that's a really really important point you're bringing up. That's right, and and so in all the press conferences throughout these seasons, right, they've been going back to Breonna Taylor again and again and again and again. For instance, because um, these are unresolved issues, right, like murders that have absolutely not been resolved. Um, so with that in mind, I, I mean, I want to start with that because the next thing I'm going to say may sound like a kind of critique. I mean, it is a kind of critique, but. I have to start on this ethical level by understanding these athletes as human beings who are being asked, if, if we're thinking about their labor, being asked to do something that just feels inhumane, I think, to them. That's what I'm hearing from them, that it's, that it's inhumane and they're just not prepared to do that in a moment like this. Uh, and that's, that seems entirely appropriate to me. Um, that that alone would justify withholding labor, right? As a, I mean, if nothing else, like just to protect their own well-being. And then also additionally, that sends a powerful message about their agency, right? And their power and their humanity. And all of that is only to be lauded. And we have to start there. I mean, and we, and we could end there. But for me, here's the thing. I want to move to a kind of political realm, right? And thinking about it on, from the standpoint of labor and of politics, because the other thing about these particular athletes, and I'm zoning in here on the NBA players particularly because the way I read NBA players is that they are arguably the most powerful workers in the world, right? And they're workers because workers, labor, produces commodities, but they don't own the commodities that they produce, right? That's the difference. The capitalist class owns the commodities that are produced by labor. And in this case, we're talking about the commodity spectacle of sport. The professional athletes that we watch don't ultimately control the dissemination, the the product that they produce, right? And so they're labor, they're workers, although they are paid in a way that makes people often misidentify them as something other than that, right? Um, yeah. So here's the thing, right? In a society that is plunging in, no doubt, to depression, 
um, amid a pandemic that has thrown people out of work, uh, we're about to see incredible regimes of austerity. We're talking about a moment where, A, workers have every reason to rebel, to rise up. But at the same time, they're under incredible constraint, right? Because their own jobs could not possibly be, and I just mean workers in general, could not possibly be more precarious. So to say, right, withhold your labor, strike as a tool of challenging police violence, right? Um, police murder, a racist regime of police violence and carcerality. That's a huge ask for almost every worker in the United mm -hmm. States, for instance, in this moment. And the power that these athletic workers have is that they can shut it all down in a heartbeat if they want to. And they also know they're not going to lose their jobs because their labor is so remarkably exceptional um, that it really can't be replaced. It just can't. And everyone knows it. And so they have the capacity to almost trigger. I mean, this is like my, this is my truly utopian reading to trigger some kind of general strike, right? Against this violence, because they can take the symbolic burden of starting that process, that leadership role. They have the shoulders broad enough to bear that weight. And I felt, especially when we heard LeBron James, who I, again, maybe, maybe the most powerful worker in the entire world, Mm -hmm. say, we're going to be indefinitely strong. Even when last night we heard most players were ready to go back, but the Clippers and the Lakers, they're still going to hold them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That to me was an astounding gesture mm -hmm. of power and what that could mean. And so today to hear backsliding on that, it feels like further co-optation back to this sort of neoliberal order, a way of find capital once again and the white supremacist order, finding a way to manage that resistance and put it back in place. And I'm sure that there were concessions made that we haven't learned about yet, but I mean, like mm -hmm. those concessions could never match up to the potential that would come from a true mass labor movement and a last mass labor movement fighting for actual racial justice and fighting against racial violence. And so I feel sad tonight that what felt to me like a moment of unimaginable potential seems like it's already gone. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of add on to that, I mean, you know, I mean, I think it also depends on from what perspective are you even view, are we viewing the sort of athlete activist movement, right? When we look, when we turn on TV, we turn on ESPN, of course, most, most sports that we see are football and basketball, into lesser extent baseball and other sports in the NHL, but then there are athletes, white athletes, and many, many other sports who are not doing a damn thing, you know, like who have not even bothered to use their social media to say anything. So, so yes, wh while we absolutely need to like, we, we, we really hope that a lot of these major, um, major athletes and in the sports that get all this media attention, that they are going to be willing to sort of hold strong and remain like committed. Um, at the same time, I guess, I guess I'm skeptical. I don't quite, I don't have the hope for the same mass labor movement. Of course I hope for it, but I mean, it, it's, it's so interesting. So for example, you guys know I'm a swimmer and I've also been paying a lot of attention to gymnastics and gymnastics has this huge, like worldwide, like a truly global gymnastics Alliance movement. And it's silent about all of this, except for the very few black gymnasts who have come out and say, yes, there's racism in gymnastics. And this is how I felt about it. 
But other than that, they're not, they haven't been speaking about the college athletes on campus. They haven't been speaking about BLM except for like, you know, the black square and, and supporting the FIG and, you know, USA Gymnastics statement. Um, there really hasn't been anything. I mean, Jessica O'Byrne of Gymcastic Podcasts, she will post a lot of stuff about it because, and she talks about it on her podcast, which is a huge, which is, has a huge audience. But then, you know, you have other sports like swimming where you do have some Emmanuel, um, you know, you do have Colin Jones, you do have the black athletes who have been successful and Leah Neal, they are speaking out about it. But then you have Michael Phelps, who is like the hugest swimmer ever you know, and is still very, very active. And he has not said anything. I mean, I looked on, on Facebook, the last thing that he himself posted on Facebook that was not like a paid sponsorship was about his documentary, The Weight of Gold. And the caption for the documentary is, let me find it. It says, um, The Weight of Gold, we're human beings just like everybody else. And like, if that is not like a, like, we're united you know, where all of us athletes are in this together for mental health. Well, what about all these issues of anti-Black racism and white supremacy? I mean, we haven't heard anything from him, haven't heard anything from Katie Ledecky, who I love, who is an amazing swimmer. She hasn't said anything. So we just we just have all of these white athletes and other sports who are not saying anything. And I mean, Simone Manuel in, um, in her podcast with Changing the Game, which is USA Today's podcast, she called it out. She said, I'm tired of being the only black person to speak out about any of this stuff. Like you need to be asking these questions of white athletes. And it's just outside of like this bubble of spores. We're just not seeing it happen. Um, so that, that's just sort of my, my contribution to this conversation. Yeah. To, like you, you raise a really interesting point in terms of, of like recognizing and I've tweeted about this several times, like recognizing who is staying silent in this moment and and who is speaking up and what that actually means. And to bring it back to like Nathan's point about um, sort of a broad, massive movement against racial injustice, which we we clearly need. And like uh, U.S. as a failed state absolutely completely needs a, a, a mass sort of revolution. I I get like I understand that when like when you see the people who are one being silent and then you see certain segments of people who are like you know vocal about it maybe you know giving in a little bit and I completely understand why athletes in the in the NBA like want to continue playing like I'm I'm never going to like say that they're sort of doing something wrong or like I'm, I'm not going to overly critique them for wanting to to um, play and and whatever they want but i kind of see that we or i kind of get by the argument that we're kind of missing this opportunity and and it and it also it it forces us back to reflecting on this thing that i don't know how to sit with which is clearly i mean and we can just put this in the context of like what happened with colin kaepernick four years ago and then this was apparently four years to the day yesterday that I saw that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So four years later, it looks completely different. We have sports shut down and across, yeah. you know, across sports, this huge shutdown. And from a, the level of spectacle, you know, people can't look away from that. Like the spectacle is blinding. And that seems to be good from a symbolic standpoint. Like if you're trying to do some kind of symbolic labor resistance in order to have an impact, if like that's all people can pay attention to, on the day that you do it, it worked. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I, I don't know how well it worked. I actually, I don't like, maybe it 
you know, if there are, as you say, these offshoots, and this is something that kind of keeps, you know, it keeps fermenting and, and I don't know what's going to happen in three weeks. It's a function of this. The, the truth is that this is a function of all the protests that have happened already. You know, this, yeah. this didn't come out of nowhere. It came as a consequence of those things. And, you know, I'm, this, is the, this is the fresh, hot take perspective, right? Like, I'm just responding immediately to the thing that just happened. But that's actually a really limited way of appraising the impact here. And I, and I don't know the answer. It, right? We're also in the midst of it. Like, it's hard to appraise when we're literally in the middle of, like, at least the sport side of it. Listen, people have been protesting in the streets of Portland for, what, 200 days now? So like this has been happening, the, 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 the social revolution, the social rebellion has been happening. But in sport, in the sport world, in terms of the actual like actions taken to bring these um, or, or to uh, bring the message that players want to the fore in, in, in revolting against the system is, is like it's a day old, um, really in terms of like the strike. Um, so like, I, I, it's hard to appraise whether or not it is successful. We don't even know like what they, the players demanded. That's right. Johanna brought up, um, you know, like white people not, or staying silent or across, across the board. We were seeing movements stemming predominantly, I, I would argue overwhelmingly from black athletes uh, and sports um, that are predominantly made up of black athletes. We saw it in the NBA, WNBA. Um, uh, Osaka is obviously not white um, in the MLB only like in San Francisco, the, the team with the most um, black baseball players, they decided to strike. And then we got last night to, to the NHL. Um, and um, this was all happening like relatively quickly. So today we're hearing that like the players didn't have an opportunity to discuss it, whatever. Like I, I think we'll talk about today in a, in a couple of minutes. But like last night I turned on the NHL knowing that they were going to start. Like the one of my first tweets when the news broke that um the bucks were on strike um one of my first tweets was i guarantee that there's going to be an nhl game tonight because i just knew you just knew it because of the way the game has historically been the way that the game is currently and the players that make up the game today i've said several times on this podcast that i think like the nhl is both racist has a history of upholding white supremacy and is one of the most toxic cultures um currently in professional sport that that i've seen um and i knew all along that they would be playing what really got me going last night on top of the fact that they decided to play um was they decided to have this like moment of reflection they called it a moment of reflection and this was directly in response to what was happening from 4 p.m to 8 p.m there was four hours there where all this stuff was breaking and the NHL decided to come out with this moment of reflection. So I had to turn on the TV and just see what this was. I turn it on and I kid you not, it was maybe six seconds long oh, and that's it. And on the screens all over it, uh, and this was at Scotiabank Center in, in Toronto. Um, all the screens said end racism 
and had the hashtag we skate for black lives like that image is now burned into my mind (laughs) um and it it, and in many ways it's it's actually going to produce a boycott of hockey it's not a strike a boycott because like that it's just obviously completely ignoring the issues and not being able to like even hashtag black lives matter or not being able to actually show a real moment of solidarity is like shock. Well, it's not shocking coming from someone who is like grown up in, in, in uh, uh, like in hockey culture and ingrained in hockey culture. It's not surprising, but like the lack of solidarity coming from the, the NHL, the NHL players and most of major league baseball is like, it's nothing but racist and people who continue to watch those sports, people who, who continue to like not support players in the NBA, WNBA, WTP, MLS, and the players in the MLB who decided to strike, like they need to understand that they are actually upholding white supremacy and systemic racism. And I, what actually scares me and what frightens me as like a, a member of the society is that they don't like, they don't understand that they don't understand that by saying like, I just want to watch sports cause I'm bored. I just want to turn on the NHL. I just want to see who wins between Tampa Bay and, and Boston. I hear it's a really good goalie matchup tonight that that act in and of itself is the problem. And I, it frightens me that people can't make that connection between their own inaction and their own silence and the structural systemic racism, police lethality and white supremacy that they like will tell you they don't buy, they don't like, they, they will not support, but then in their actions, they do. Um, and the, then today, so I'll conclude my rant on the NHL with this. Then today we, we're seeing, okay, the NHL is deciding to, to show solidarity and go on a strike um, for the next um, two days. Um, but this was, one, only after being pushed by hockey, the, the members of the Hockey Diversity Alliance. Like these seven people, seven or eight hockey players, have had to take on all of the emotional labor, uh, all of the, the actual labor to get this going. And the fact that the NHL took like 24 hours to come around to that and they needed to be kind of maybe convinced by people like Akeem Alou, by people like Anthony Stewart, by people like Evander Kane, Nazem Kadri, is, is just, it makes hockey even more obviously problematic um, and and. I I would argue like impossible to watch moving forward. So Derek, I have a question about the NHL stuff. So as so as someone who was not who was not raised on hockey is not really at all familiar with NHL. Uh, but long would have learned from you all on the podcast. Um, the whole like skate, what is it? Skating for black people? Is that what the thing was? Yeah, it's skate for black lives. Skate for black lives. That's is, the hashtag. Is that like meant to be like a unity? Like we're going to forge ahead and continue to contribute yeah. to like the capitalist movement by working together through this? Yeah, like it, it, it's supposed to be like the call for solidarity and, and unity in the NHL, and it's 
supposed to be in reference. Like it was basically what the NHL is doing. Um, you know how like the NBA, oh, I don't know if you've been watching the NBA, but in the NBA on the court, they have hashtag black lives matter. Mm-hmm. This is the NHL's version of that. The difference is they can't even say it. Well, yeah, they're, rip- they're riffing never- on the movement for black lives. That's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's why they're using <laughs> yeah. that phrasing. Uh, but it yeah. seems really appropriate in the context of the NHL. I mean, like I, who's buying it? Yeah, and they haven't said the names. Like, for instance, nobody, nowhere in the NHL has someone said the name George Floyd or Brianna Taylor or now Jacob Blake. Like, the names won't even get brought up. Like, there's no substance to it. That's where the critique of the NHL comes from. All right, so the other thing we want to talk about today, I think, because, you know, I mean, this is like, could there be a a more um, prevailing theme for our show is this pandemic, right? The pandemic and sports more broadly. And uh, there's been a lot that's been taking place in that context. Let me just start with one that's really kind of an axe to grind I have. Something we've been hearing about now for weeks and weeks. This nauseating, for me, discourse that sports are a reward for a functioning society. We're now hearing this again and again. Sports are a reward for... and, And naughty Americans, you don't deserve your sports because you aren't a functioning society. Uh, yeah, obviously. Nathan, do you know where that came from? Well, um, you know, listen, uh, Jane McManus says that that came from her, and I have no reason to contradict that. Uh, Sean Doolittle said it in a press conference, and it really took off. Uh, so that's that's mm. some other kind of uh, <laughs> lineage uh, of the phrase. But here's the thing. Obviously, we shouldn't have sports. I mean, that's what we've been saying. We say this ad nauseum. So I'm not making a case for the fact that like we need to have sports. But rather this framing about rewards for functioning societies, first of all, it it centers the fan, right? I mean, like Mm -hmm. think of the dehumanizing way in which that's characterized. If you're a good little fan, you get to have your sports as if the sports are just like dessert that your parents are giving you, right? No, that's work that people have to do. And it's actually always dangerous. So for me, that's one thing that it completely, this thing completely erases the fact that sport is a harmful pursuit outside of the context of the pandemic. It completely elides that logic. It's saying instead, you know, like sports are good. As long as you are good, you get this good thing. Sports. No, sports aren't good. Sports are harmful. Football should never be your reward. No one deserves to watch football. I'm sorry, but it's true. No one deserves that. No one deserves to have people losing years of their life, losing their identity, losing everything so that you can have a good time. You don't deserve that. I don't care how well you act. So, you know, just to retire this terrible phrase because it's really killing me. Obviously, it's about like it's about football and the NBA and the sports that are like being shown, but it's also about like the Olympics and like those kinds of sports also where like okay, so maybe people won't people can't necessarily always watch on TV, but like they're following them on Instagram. Right. That's the other thing is that it's when athletes are like they're using their other social media platforms to show fans what they're doing, which is OK. That's their that's their choice. They can do that, whatever. But then when fans are are questioning, why are they coming forward with this and that? Why are they quote unquote complaining about like their labor conditions? 
Um, and what, so just to sort of add that, like in any kind of environment, it doesn't matter if the pandemic's going on or not. Like these athletes, I really like what you said that that sports are work that people have to do. And it's not only is it like the kind of the grind of their bodies, which is terrible and really awful in a lot of cases, but it's oftentimes like racial abuse, sexual abuse, right? Mental, emotional abuse, all these other things to kind of add to what you were saying. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's it. That's exactly. One of the first things, and again, I, I keep shouting on my own Twitter at Derek Krim, but um, <laughs> Derek's just a Twitter promotion machine. Now he's just transformed from a scholar into just a, a tweeting bot. <laughs> No, but one of the things that I I really try to tell students, I teach sociology of sport, and I really try, like, one of the first things I tackle is this weird, or all of these beliefs that, like, sport is one there for us, sport is there for our entertainment, and two, that, like, professional athletes are somehow outside of the division of labor. Like they're outside of the, they're unexploitable, that they somehow just because they make most, some of them make a lot of money, that they are outside, they're not to be considered workers. They're not to be considered um, people that can be harmed, people that can be exploited. And like a lot of students really struggle with this. And for a uh, you know what? And it's not just students. A lot, like my family, my extended family, they struggle with this. Like, oh, LeBron James makes fifty million dollars. Why should we care? What? Like that is that's such weird logic to me. Like these people are laborers. They are exploited by rich people, by rich white guys for the most part, who can solve all of the world problems collectively if they wanted to they can pool their money and we can all have health care we can all have food and housing and clothing but they don't because they're accumulating capital on the backs of these workers so like when somebody says that our reward our society's reward for properly functioning as if a properly functioning state has ever existed in the, the history of, you know, history, the history of people that that is so problematic because it treats the people who are partake, who are working and who are doing the labor as something to, that we own, something that is there to entertain us because we're bored. Because we need some sort of emotional um, or some sort of distraction from our daily lives. And that still, when people are listening to this podcast, I guarantee you there's going to be one or two people who are like, well, like I work really hard and I only make 50K, but LeBron James makes 50 million. So that's okay. Like it's so hard to get people to buy in into that. Like they're not there for our desires and our you know like they're not our property um and that's all whenever i hear somebody say that that's what i think i'm like you're missing the point well and we started with the sort of the what the WNBA and NBA players were thinking and feeling yesterday. Um, and then part of this is this, this question of who the we is in this equation, right? Like this notion of we and them. There, this is a racialized question, 
right? I mean, the way in which fandom yeah. is understood in the structure of U.S. society, like the we is a white we. Not not all fans are white. I get it, but I mean, it's a white we. And it's a black them in the context, for instance, of like those WNBA and NBA games. That's the feeling those athletes actually had. I mean, that, that's what that's my sense. It's like and they, they said it explicitly. They have been saying it exactly. Explicitly. That's exactly it. And so, like we, the idea that you made this point, the idea that this is a functioning society, right? And this, this is like Lewis Moore said this on Twitter, right? That it's not a society that is founded on slavery and that has at no point even remotely mitigated how that history of slavery continues to shape the society, a colonial society, a society that is right now, this moment, a colonial society. That's not a functioning society. It functions through the vicious exploitation of non-white, particularly black people. That's what makes it, quote unquote, function. It functions for white people. And it functions for white people during a pandemic when it is non-white people who are doing the most brutal and essential forms of labor to keep that society functioning so that the white people can have the relative luxuries that they enjoy and the feeling of a functioning society. And so they can wish for watching LeBron James on TV and get pissed off when he says no. Yeah. And, you know, even just even just to take that even further, where like if we look at the very foundation of our country or the, the U.S., I'm talking about the U.S., but also Canada to certain to many extents, actually, yeah. it's not just about slavery. It's about genocide of indigenous people, clear, literally clearing the land of indigenous people and then bringing over enslaved mm-hmm. people to repopulate the land and work for them. Right. So it's like this like multi-layered process of like whitening the society. So it's, it's not a a functioning society. It's a white supremacist functioning society, like through and through and has never not been the case, at least in the U S on Canadian history, I'm much shakier on. Um, But it's, and it's, of course, it's not only the U S right. I mean, as you know, Zoe Zamutzi said in our interview with her, these issues of like imperialism, um, colonialism, um, genocide, all of these things are absolutely foundational to every Western society. So again, the whole idea of who is a functioning society, what the hell does that even mean? It doesn't even, it doesn't even exist in any of our contacts or contexts where Western sport is being played that I don't know. And it always brings me also like whenever I hear the word functionalism or a functioning, like as the, as a sociologist, I'm immediately struck um and i i think about um all of the problems with like durkheim's idea of structural functionalism and and all of the problems with like oh like criminologists have long used functionalism to maintain a social order that is white supremacy like so functioning is only in reference to a white supremacist society exactly as you just put um joanna like it's it's absolutely um, part and parcel of a racist society. It's functionalist thought historically over the past like decades, even centuries, has been about social regulation and about social control to promote the status quo. Yeah, and let's let's make one other point about this sort of because remember we're, we're, we're of course talking about this functioning functionalist society. Um, the discourse around sport being a reward for a functioning society is also a fundamentally neoliberal victim blaming discourse, 
i.e. the problem in the United States is that individuals have failed to act like appropriate moral actors. And so we should all suffer as a consequence of that, which completely elides the structural dimensions, i.e. the fact that we have uh, a full-fledged fascist regime uh, attempting to destroy the society through the pandemic very consciously uh, and tear down all the public health institutions and everything else that are here to protect people and put them in position to survive. Uh, no, it's the individual's fault and so they don't deserve sports. Uh, and this brings me to the last thing I think we should talk about today, which is you know, the pandemic and the university and the university starting again now in the fall, because this is a site of profound neoliberal machination. Uh, the fact that these universities are opening up and inviting everyone, inviting students, inviting faculty onto the campuses. And why are they inviting students onto the campuses? Because they know that it is more fun to be a university student mm. on campus than on Zoom. It is more fun, mm. right? And so if you want the tuition dollars and you want residence fees and everything else, you, got, you want your students to be on campus. And so you're gonna entice them back with the promise of the full university experience, right? But as soon as they get onto campus, it's nothing but shaming and chastisement over the fact that they're failing to follow the regulations because actually they arrive on campus and they're told that they should be in a semi-carceral state, right? As opposed yeah. to having the fun that they're paying tens of thousands of dollars for, right? And so this is how the universities get their cake and they get to eat it too. They get those dollars that they're looking for from students and then they get to blame students and hold students accountable for the crime of keeping these universities open and subjecting students and workers of all sorts to deadly and potentially life-altering conditions. And it is disgusting. What's happening around us right now is basically, and you, you've put it perfectly, they are bringing students on campus because that's part of college life, right? Like that is part of being a college student is being on campus, going to parties, enjoying yourself, like meeting new people, all these things. Then an infection is obviously always going to happen. Like this is a, a massively infectious, massively um, damaging um, virus that we that we've encountered. So it's going to happen no matter what. You get enough people in our, in a in a space, an enclosed space, there's going to be spread. When that happens. The first thing they're going to do is abdicate their own accountability by saying you were responsible for washing your hands and not going to parties and not going out for homecoming events and not doing this and you failed and therefore we University of Southwest Mississippi Northeast whatever we are not responsible and I'm actually hearing that some universities are getting students to sign waivers, mm -hmm. liability waivers. And that is so, so problematic. I, I can't even begin to describe how messed up that is. That they're going to actually get like signatures that, that abdicate their own responsibility when the only reason students are there in the first place is because they are being invited onto campuses by people by senior administrators that can and have the power to say stay home for a semester stay home for an academic year we're in the middle of a raging 
pandemic. Absolutely. And, you know, to add to the the waiver part, I'm going to shout out her again, Jessica Byrne. I'm a huge fan. She drops throughout Jim Kastic podcast. In addition to saying that everyone should vote and support BLM and all these things, she repeatedly tells listeners, like, if you have students or if you are a student who's going back to university, do not sign that waiver, which I love mm-hmm. because they shouldn't. And it's, it's, it's gross and it's ridiculous that they're doing it. And that hypocrisy is so obvious. That's kind of, for me, that's almost kind of the shocking thing that, that it's so obvious that we're able to see through it so clearly. And yet they're all just forging ahead and sending, you know, these university wide emails, you know, this time where people did this and these are the actions that we're taking and they should be ashamed with themselves and they're threatening everybody's lives and da, 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 da. And of course, not only are they threatening the students' lives, they're threatening the the families' lives too, if the students have to go back home. But then of course, it's also faculty and staff and staff who are getting laid off and who most of whom don't get paid very well. And of course, the the only way we're able to keep classrooms quote unquote clean is for staff to endanger themselves for their very low pay. You know, and and that is just like the horrific thing. Again, also not to mention, you know, the grad students and the adjuncts and the non-tenure track people, right? The people who are also on the low end of the totem pole who are not getting paid what they should be getting paid. But it's just, it's, it's, it's going to get everyone sick. It's going to hurt everybody. And it's like, we're all complicit. That's like the really hard thing, I think, for me at least. And we, we also know that well, based on the last 30 years of antitrust law in with the NCAA is like universities will never actually face the music. Like when this is all said and done, when we're talk when when there are inevitably lawsuits about liability because people have been sick because they've been brought on campus or workers are sick because they are forced into precarious places and and places that are infected that are are harmful and risky when that actually happens we know that universities are not going to face the music they're not going to be held accountable um or at least i would be very very surprised if they're had held accountable in any way and i think that they know this and i think that like them they're taking that like pretty calculated risk and saying you know what it makes sense to have people on campus and it makes sense to have people here because we need money right now because our athletic program is not bringing in the money because our football team might not be there to bring in the money and this just points to what i've been saying for now episodes and episodes this is about the problems in all of higher education this is about long standing problems of relying on certain income and revenue sources and exploiting certain income and revenue sources to survive while paying at senior administrators and yes even full-time professors too much money and paying out too many people too much money we need to have a there needs to be a revolution in higher education I do want to say, though, <laughs> there are a lot of full-time professors who don't get paid very well. Like, I, I do think- that That's also true. Yeah, yes, there's, that there's a very, true. and I know this is not what you mean. There's, a, I think that the number of professors who get paid a lot of money is, is, is small compared to most who teach like, you know, we all have friends who teach like a 5-5. Five, five. 
and who get like forty-five to fifty-five thousand dollars a year in like a city, you know. So we we do we all know people like that, but just to kind of clarify. Yeah, well, I think it's also like the the corporatization of higher education has uh, is really a, a large is is to blame to a large degree here. Like people in in business schools are making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Professors are making hundreds of thousands of dollars in big business schools. The local like French assistant professor is not. Um, but then on the same to go down, like to, to, to broaden this graduate students and contingent faculty are making literally nothing and supporting the entire system above mm -hmm. that. They're supporting the assistant professors in history and the humanities and, um, in sociology and in criminology and, um, political science. And they're also supporting the administrators making I, I'm pretty sure there's university presidents um, in the United States. Why well, I, I know that there's making a million and above, and then you're paying Nick Saban eleven million, and then you're paying a business um, prof four hundred thousand. Like, yeah, yeah, it's it's not it's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and and the fact that you can't go one damn year without college football, you can't go one year University of Alabama without a football team. The one year. You've been like exploiting students, international students, domestic students for decades. You have endowments in the billions of dollars and you can't go one year without a football program. That's a travesty. And they're still playing college football people. They're still playing college football. Those young people are still being forced to go through this despicable charade. Uh, it's got to stop. Today's a great day to cancel college football. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.